Hey, how you doing today, fans of The Sopranos Podcast? If you joined us last time, you'll know that we are doing a full retrospective of Season 1, including top three lists, some of our favorite moments, and topics that cover the story as a whole. Our last episode was part one of that retrospective, and this is part two, and we're going to pick it up right where we left off. Thank you so much for joining us, and enjoy part two of our Season 1 retrospective. I think it's time for another top three. Top three. Top three what? Top Top three three characters and performances. Oh man, you're coming in. We're coming in a hot one. Coming in hot. Wow. Hot slugs here, baby. Hot slugs, baby. Boy. So So, we did. We did say we can't pick Tony. Yes. I want to get that out there. It doesn't make sense to pick Tony. So if you're doing a top three characters slash performances in The Sopranos, it's going to be Tony every time because he's one of the richest characters in television. Period. Right. History. He'd be in top three television characters of all time. Easy. So he would just be number one all the time. So we are leaving him off, but we can choose anyone else. With the caveat that it's not left off because he's not interested. No, he, he is the de facto number one. Correct. It's, it's, this list is really top three characters slash performances that aren't Tony James Gandolfini. Yeah. So I'll kick us off this time. My number one character, and we'll talk, we'll discuss if there's any questions. Are you starting at one? Or are you starting I'm at starting at, no, sorry, at three. I'm going oh, three. Go. three, two, one. We're going to stick to the format. Three, two, one. My number three for season one. Corrado Jr. Soprano. Oh, yeah. He's my number one. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Oh, there we boy. go. Yeah. Junior, what can I say? First of all, expertly played by Dominic Chianese. Uh, the insecurity, but there's a likability there. There's something about him that um, reminds me of family members and, and various people I've met over the years. The glasses, the way he dresses, you just know who this guy is right from the get-go. And one of the most compelling aspects of Junior, and we, I want to hear from you, Jordan, because yeah. he's your number one. I hate I'm sorry one, to yeah. blow up your number one. Don't apologize. I'm happy to discuss it anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But... Um, one of the things I love about Junior is what makes him as interesting as a quote-unquote villain for the sh- for the season is he st- he always believes in a part of him in the potential in Tony Soprano's potential. All, you know that that scene where they're talking at the baseball game. He's like, "You could have made the majors," and you know he 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 he's insecure and he feels the need to be the boss, but he he does love and believe in Tony. The reason things turn out the way they do is because Junior's in this horrible position and he's been manipulated. And as the boss of a mob family, there is only so much shit you can eat before you have to do something. So even the name Junior suggests to us that this character will never come into his full potential. He doesn't even have his own name. Uh, He's like an eternal second banana. Um, His major physical attribute is he wears, like me, uh, these, these huge glasses with these thick, thick lenses implying that Maybe he does not always see things correctly, uh, or mm. that he's forced to always kind of look buffoonish because of these big bug-eyed spectacles he has on his face all the time. We see in the flashback in Down Neck that he was certainly the number two to his brother, and then even as the boss, he's not the boss. He is Tony's puppet slash lightning rod, who will just act as a puppet boss while the family is going through this transitional period in the aftermath of Jackie's death. Um, and he's also a puppet for Livia, who will use him to basically hold sway over the family and enact a kind of sick revenge uh, over Tony for, you know, putting her away, but also to kind of, um, you know, try to resolve their relationship in a way that favors her and how she's remembered and thought of to kind of give her back some respect. Yeah. I love Junior. Junior also represents the old world, you know. It's like, if you want to think about how gangsterism itself, what its health is like in terms of its old values you need look no further than how Junior is doing. 
how is Junior doing? Well, his power is really just a show. Um, and I think, actually, more than all that, somehow, the most compelling thing about Junior is that it's suggested to us in these scripts that Junior is kind of Tony's father figure, uh, and maybe always has been, that he perhaps had a more authentic relationship with Junior than he did with Johnny Boy. He taught Tony how to play baseball. That's right, yeah. In the flashback in Down Neck, we get a, a lovely short scene with him and Tony playing catch. We have another reference to that later on. Um, we see that Junior is authentically interested in Tony even as a child. He's really one of the few characters that speaks to him directly and not in a scolding way. You know, and I, I made this assertion in an earlier episode, but uh, Junior and Tony both have a penchant for, like, really stupid dad jokes. And I'm thinking <laughs> that perhaps Junior may have even taught some of these to Tony. Yeah. Um, when uh, Junior and Livia are visiting the gravesite and they have young AJ with them, you know, and AJ makes this little joke, Livia thinks it's preposterous, but Junior wants AJ to finish it because uh, I, I brought this up in a previous episode, but I think I think he's hearing one of his old jokes come back because undoubtedly AJ probably heard that from his father, who probably heard that from Junior. I think Junior is a, a huge presence in The Sopranos. We cannot say he looms in the same way that Tony looms or that Livia looms, but he is uh, this, this huge presence. And let's keep in mind, too, he's only the villain in the season because... He just wants what any of us would want if we were the boss of the family. He wants the respect that is owed. He wants to be able to run the table because that's what he was supposed to be able to do. Yeah. You know, uh, he's not asking for anything outrageous. We will see villain characters on this show who do horrible things to people and want, you know, things that are, are either impossible or are, frankly, like, hellish. Yeah. Uh, just evil. Junior's not an evil man. He just wants things run the way they were supposed to be run properly. And actually, it's Tony who's fucking that up. There's a version of this show somewhere where we're following Carrado and Tony's the villain because he's yeah. undermining him. It's, it's It makes for an interesting dynamic because he's the antagonist from a literary standpoint. Right. But you have to pity him because right. he's being used every which way. You and hesitate it, to use the word villain to describe right. Junior. It's because, he's only a villain because our hero's an anti-hero. Right. You know, that's, that's all it is. Yeah, well said. He's also not nearly clever as the real villain in the first season. Right, I, 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 yeah, I right. Um, <clears throat> Junior made uh, the honorable mention portion of my list for the reasons already described. He's a fascinating character. He's he's a, he's also weird in this antagonistic role because I do feel for him, um, in part because, again, in spite of what we might hear about the nostalgia for old school gangsterism, Junior seems to me like kind of a bad gangster. Like he does like, oh, this guy is mm. dealing drugs. Let's throw him off a bridge. Are we going to check on it first? Are we going to, are we going to do the due diligence, <laughs> yeah. which would then reveal that no one of one of you, the one of the captains who makes money for you depends on that guy. Yeah. Tony, excuse me, Junior does none of that. So all that being played through this actor who has so much grace and so much dignity in he himself to portray this role that is so the polar opposite of him is tremendous. My top three characters start with uh, number three, which is Artie Bucco. Ooh. Oh, and he was, he's got to be Artie. an honorable mention for me, too. Artie, Artie, honorable mention, yeah. Yeah, Artie, in, particularly in this season, to me, brings up so many things about the interaction with gangsterism and who this guy is. And Jordan mentioned something in the last episode about Artie actually, I think like other characters like Tony, searching for something and searching for some deeper meaning and it's so funny to see these scenes where John Ventimiglia plays these plays them pretty straight 
these emotional moments, but they are often hilarious. And I found it very striking in rehashing a bit of the last episode how much it hurts Artie, not only that he finds out about what Tony did, Artie might be dim in some respects. He's not foolish. I think he gets pretty quickly not only what happened, but why it happened. That Tony burned down the restaurant not to hurt Artie, but to help him. Mm. And, and doesn't in some way that, in fact, make it worse. I love Artie because he has one of the most unique relationships with Tony ever. Artie talks to and deals with Tony in a way that Tony would never tolerate from any of his subordinates. But Artie's a friend. And he's a straight-laced friend. And he might be the only friend Tony has, if I had to, like, make a list of Tony Soprano's friends. Yeah, he's chummy with Pussy and Paulie and the guys, but, like, I don't know. I feel, uh, oddly enough, like, if Tony weren't a gangster and he had a body in his trunk, Artie might be the guy he'd go to. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah, Artie's great. Lily? So I have, um, I'm not great at, at, at putting people in order, so take mine out of order, but for sake of conversation, I have at number three, Livia Soprano. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, come on. She's my number one. She's perfection. That's my number one. Every single line she has elicits such a strong response from me, whether it's nostalgia from a similar something a, a, a family member has said to me or just that cringe of like, oh God, you really are that awful. Or ah, she's really manipulating the whole, she just makes me jump out of my seat and, and, and cheer because she's just so perfect and evil. Yeah. Yeah. And she has so many classic lines. I mean, we, we, I'm sure we quote, I think we quoted her a few times yeah. in our quote section. We sure did. One of my honorable mention quotes <laughs> It was um, when AJ lets it slip in Down Neck that Tony is seeing a psychiatrist. She says, psychiatrist? But that's crazy. That's all nonsense. That's nothing but a racket for the Jews. She's <laughs> not only funny the way she says it, but like she gets quiet about it. <laughs> in the, in, um, and, you know, Lily, uh, my wife, is, is Jewish, and, and I just think that's so funny. I, I, every t- I think the first time we watched that, and many times after, I look at her and say, is that, is that true? Is oh, it- yeah, total racket for the Jews. <laughs> you, you heard it here, guys. Um, but, yeah, it's <laughs> Livia, I mean, what can be said? I mean, uh, that hasn't already been said or Agreed. will be said at a future date about this character. I mean, she's she is the soprano. That's why she's number one for me. She is soprano season one. Yeah. This is... This is the character. Yeah, that's, and, that's and, your villain. And we talked about in our episode Frankenstein, who makes the monster, who creates the monster. It's Dr. Frankenstein. Who's our Dr. Frankenstein here? It's Livia. She created the monster that is Tony Soprano. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it, it's kind of in reverse, too. Dr. Frankenstein creates his monster out of deeply caring to find out more, to find out if this was possible. Livia only, you know, almost creates Tony by lack of care. Uh, by denying him the certain love that he can never really replace in his life. I mean, that's the piece that's missing from Tony. Interestingly put. Yes, Livia is definitely on my list. Again, does it even defy the question of giving it a number since she's so overwhelming and overpowering a character in this season, the villain? I think I mentioned it when we recorded the episode on Isabella, but it's fascinating that in Isabella, Livia doesn't appear for the first half of the episode, mm. and she's not mentioned. Um, none of that matters, however, because it it's not her presence that's always the key. It's the shadow that she casts. Correct. And, uh, you know, all props to Nancy Marchand, by the way. Um, she's no longer with us, unfortunately. Uh, at this point, 20 years out, a couple of these actors now have passed on. 
Um, but Livia, you know, Nancy Marchand, I think she kind of was more known for doing more kind of waspy characters. So for her to play the evil Italian mama and do it so well, God, oh, she's so special. And these scenes just crackle. And she's she's the villain in a mob show. I mean, what else can be said about this woman? She's yeah. she's she's dynamite. Uh, so yeah, Livia's on Livia's number one on my list. Yeah, and she's uh, on your list, Lily. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, my number two is Doctor Melfi. Mine too. Also my number two. Wow. Uh, so three of us have her at number two. Let's talk about her. She's the moral center of this show. She's uh, the foil to Tony, or acts as sort of a Greek chorus. Uh, we talked at length earlier about her, you know, the, the situation between her and Tony and their love or whatever there is there. What else do we want to say about this amazing character in this amazing show? Well, you wrote, you really set it up rather nicely. Melfi wears so many hats in this show. She is kind of the love interest. She's the foil for Tony. She's really Tony's chief ally in the, in the plot of him to figure out himself. She is his accomplice in learning that, you know, his mother is really sort of ostensibly the villain of the show. She's the audience surrogate. You know, anybody who is more rational than the people on this show will mm. see things through her eyes. Um, she's also the show's um, uh, intellectual center. Yeah. I, I bring this up all the time on the show, so much that I apologize to the listeners for bringing it up so often, but uh, Tony, you know, lacks certain tools to really dissect his own life because he does not have Melfi's education. If he had had more exposure to art and literature and philosophy, he might have some more keen understanding of himself before seeing her. But because she's the first thing in his life that is like her, suddenly all these doors are thrown open at the same time. And I think Tony feels lost, but he also feels sort of hopeful, like there's something out there. We see this a lot. You know, Tony uh, is confronted with the statue of the goddess in the very first shot of the series. Uh, Tony, of course, with, you know, Paul brought up earlier the painting of the barn in Melfi's office. Tony confronting the painting in Irina's apartment, mm. uh, even. You know, he, he's suddenly realizing that art and music and these things have significance, and they might have significance inside of himself. And the fact that Melfi has lit that fire makes her really the, you know, other than Livia, the most important woman on the show for me. Mm. Yeah. You know, the other thing about Melfi as a favorite for me is you know, what a difficult role to play. Mm -hmm. You know, all these other characters, Tony included, they can hide behind this funny accent, right? They can hide behind these North Jersey affectations and all of that. But Lorraine Bracco really has nothing to hide behind and has a, a, an immense job to do in being all of that, but also Italian. And she's just totally exposed as the straight person of all the scenes it's 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 terribly difficult as an actor and she just knocks it out of the park well, every time what's very fascinating about that lily is lorraine brocco was offered i believe the story goes the role of carmilla right which first of all totally different show uh i mean it would have changed everything, everything. but what's fascinating is lorraine brocco as an actor and I think Carmela, the wife of the main mob guy, might be the more initially appealing role to your average actress. But Lorraine Bracco is like, I've done the mob wife thing. I want to, who, who do you got for this Melfi character? 
And mm-hmm. she's like, that's what she was drawn to. I have never, of the many actors in the show I actually have had course to meet, I've never met Lorraine Bracco, but anything I've seen of her and from other people I know who have met her or interacted with her, she's just a delight. And I am impressed not only by it worked, all these wonderful things we're saying about the character of Melfi, I got to give a shout out to Lorraine Bracco, who brings such a subtlety to this role and such a nuance to it. And just take took took a took a risk uh, by saying no to the Carmela thing and wanting to go this route. And she's so just delightfully restrained. Yes. You know? yep. She it's it it would be so easy for her to overdo it in any one of her scenes to meet Tony, and she doesn't. And mm-hmm. it's just every decision she makes is to me the right one. Yep. I mean, she's absolutely perfect in this role. I am. Um, I'm oh, sorry. I wrote down that Melfi is my top choice for this season. Mm. And the reason is essentially what Lily laid out. I can't put it better. Not only that I think the character is superbly well written and performed and also has to be interesting with constraints that other characters don't have. Right. Other characters can gesticulate in ways that are that are deliberately ridiculous. Other characters can have pitch and register and she typically has to be with, I'd say, one exception, even and pretty calm. And for Melfi to make me care about that figure and for Lorraine Bracco to make me care about that person in that space still stuns me. It stuns me throughout the series. But also the other reason, again, a shout-out to the first season and something that I don't think they ever topped and, to their credit, didn't really try, something about these scenes, and it relates to what Jordan is talking about, about Tony being exposed to this high culture in many respects, is very compelling and fun to see. So particularly some of the first shots across the bow with Melfi trying to get Tony to understand these things are trying. They're dramatic. Sometimes they're tense and even upsetting. Sometimes they're really funny. When Tony says this stuff about Freud and wanting to have sex with your mother, that's not going to fly here. Yeah, Like his saying that line is great. So for me, and again... I can't put it any better than the way Lily did. Not only what the role calls for, but what Bra- Lorraine Bracco brought to it is why uh, Melfi is actually at the top of my list. Yeah, no, she's absolutely deserving of being yeah. at the top of the Hard list. Hard to argue. I mean, uh, she's also really the only character on the show that is Tony's equal. Uh, equal in terms of status, equal in terms of the things she can say to him. Yes, he often has visceral responses to it, but there's a, there's a push and pull there that's unlike anything else we see on the show. Yeah. Fascinating. I even remember a promo of the show. It was for a much later season when it was just the two chairs talking to each other, and I just thought, yeah, this is the show. Mm. Absolutely, yeah. I do actually. I remember that promo now that you bring that up. So Melfi is Lily, mine, and Jordan's number two, and Paul's number one. So I guess the next question would be, Paul, who's your number two? Well, it was it was Livia, but was we Liv- already discussed. Oh, that right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. So I actually had a number three because we've already discussed Junior, who was my one, and Melfi was my two. My number three, but I think it's still a worthy topic, is uh, Vin Mackazian. Yes. Uh, played by John Hurd. This is a one-season character. Unfortunately, uh, Vin commits suicide this season. Additionally, the actor John Hurd is no longer with us, and I I just wanted to take a moment to honor his performance, which I thought was he's more- wonderful. His performance was more interesting, I think, than what was really even written for the character, and it's because it's John Hurd. We talked about this in a previous episode, but his casting is so brilliant and Mm. so deliberate because you see the potential of this man and how he was ruined. You cast, like, a family man actor in that role, and you didn't cast, like, the typical dirty cop actor to play that part. 
Tony never gives this guy the time of day. In every single conversation Vin has with Tony, he's trying to be a friend to Tony. And Tony just doesn't want him. And yet, after Vin's death on the show, we find out that he actually was okay with that with Tony. He understood their relationship. He liked that he knew where he stood with Tony. Mm. So for, you know, maybe by accident, Tony has created a legitimate, sincere relationship with someone Yes, it was kind of a mean relationship and it was antagonistic, but nevertheless, Vin enjoyed him as a person. I, I think there could have been a friendship there had Tony only reached out. Yeah, well, you said it best. It's like casting this guy suggests that something went horribly wrong here, and very likely because of Tony. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, uh, owing Tony Soprano or pussy, as we find out, at money, I mean, that's just not a situation you ever want to find yourself in owing a mob guy money sure let alone as a fucking detective for some police poor yeah. police force in new jersey and and on a gangster show you would think um a cop would not be portrayed particularly kindly and he's not he's a dirty cop we all think dirty cops are are scum but this dirty cop had heart i don't know the sopranos kind of spared just making him a caricature and i really appreciated that about the show and always have mm. yeah while we're talking about he was your number three, I think that's a valid choice for a top three because, uh, like, we had a discussion pre-recording about how certain characters, like, it, it kills me to not put Christopher on my list. He had a wonderful season, and he's a great character, and he is always one of my favorites, but I think a lot of my feelings for Christopher in seasons past one color my opinion. And if I'm looking at season one objectively as someone who just went through the first time... He doesn't quite make my top three, but Christopher is an honorable mention for me. Yeah, for me as well. And another honorable mention for season one. Again, if we're looking at... But, but, well, to get back to what I was saying, John Hurd in season one, this character, Vin McKazian, he's a big part of season one, and he left a, a, an impact. He's, he's a memorable character. Speaking of memorable season one characters exclusive to season one, I gotta just throw another honorable mention. I've talked at length on the podcast about my love for this character, so I won't go too crazy with it. But uh, I got to mention Mikey Palmisi. Just total scum. Very funny. <laughs> Played the role well. Yes. Yeah. He, he nailed it. He maximized his minutes as an actor. That's all. That's the best you can do is take the role you get and, and make yourself memorable. And, oh, so satisfying when he gets the Sonny Corleone treatment uh, in the woods. And just, uh, you know, his relationship with his wife. And it's just... It, Mikey Palmisi is a hilarious character, and uh, he gets what he deserves. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Moving along here, there are a few... Oh, I didn't say my number one. Oh, my God. Let's number one with a bullet. How Do rude. It. My number one is Carmela Soprano. Oh. Yeah, she is. Hello. Can't, can't ignore Carmela. Yeah, actually, my, my list are the ladies. I As much as, you know, again, if we were talking about the whole series, Christopher would be my number one. I just, I love him. I adore him. But season one, I gotta, I gotta go to my ladies, which number one is Carmela, and and I just, Carmela is again so rich and so complicated because she's yes. not just, and I'm doing air quotes, everybody, yeah. <laughs> anything. She's not just the mob's wife. She's not just corrupt. She's got this really fascinating conflict within her, and I think the foil of of Carmela with Father Phil. And um, Tony with Melfi is so interesting to me because you create, you know, this trust you, and you're hoping that the person you're trusting is giving you good advice, right? Mm. And with Melfi, Tony's very lucky, 
right? You know, it's, it's hard to find a good therapist and somebody who you can connect to who's on, who's right on, on, on target for you. And Father Phil is not that for Carmela. You know, you, he, he never has the right intentions. He never really listens or gets her and he just spews back what he's supposed to spew back to get, to enjoy more of the fruits of their crooked labor. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, um, you know, she's not lucky with that. And we'll see that going forward with Carmela. And I, I, I think she always, that's not true. I think she mostly means well, she re, and tries to be a good person, but also reaps the benefits of this lifestyle let as me, well. Let me ask you this as someone mm -hmm. who put Carmela first and I love Carmela. I mean, and, and Edie, I can't, I, I could talk for days about how much of a goddess queen Edie Falco yep. is. Uh, there's nothing she can't do. She's nope. she's tremendous. But let me ask you, uh, since you put Carmela as your number one, and and we've talked at length about Tony and Carmela's marriage and 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 what that's all about, what to what degree is Carmela culpable to you in this lifestyle? Because it's always it's always like she knows but she doesn't know. She puts up with but doesn't like. There's there's that constant. <laughs> she's a character who's always at war with herself and her environment because. She has to tacitly approve of the gumas, but she hates it. But she leverages it when she needs to. She's just so fascinating. She's being pulled in a million different directions. It's hard to answer this question sans spoilers. Correct, yes. Because mm -hmm. um, we, we know more about because this. Because I know more about... the, the I, uh, My answer would be more informed if we could talk about seasons four and five. Yeah. I think she's not inculpable. Hmm. But I also, like a lot of the other characters, right? This was going to be the lot and she's in, uh, in her life and she's kind of stuck. I mean, uh, let me put it this way with, so that I can, I can respect your format, The Sopranos Podcast, <laughs> is with Christopher, right? Christopher is searching for that meeting, searching for that life, and he knows he doesn't have what he wants, right? But he doesn't quite know what to do about it. And I think Carmela's in a similar spot. Is she knows the life is wrong. She hates that her engagement ring was stolen. Like there's not one part of their marriage that's legit other than the papers. Right? Mm. And um, he's not faithful. Uh, you know, it's, it's really difficult for her to live with these truths yet she can buy furniture whenever she wants and she has all this beautiful jewelry and all of these beautiful statues and this beautiful home she gets to take care of and i think part of her is very comfortable with that but i also think that if there was a safe route out where she wouldn't end up destitute i do think she would take it mm. Interesting. And so where does that fit into her culpability? Well... Is there genuine love here? Yes. I think there's love between Tony and, and, and I Carmela. I think so, too. Uh, again, I can't speak to later seasons, but I absolutely do, and I'll, I'll leave it at that. Yeah. I find one of the most genuine moments in the first season is when they're sitting out by the pool, and Tony tells yeah. her, you know, you are my life. Mm -hmm. Totally believe it, and I think she believed it. I, I think yeah. I think, and I think that's, think that's one of the few true moments, and... Yeah. and even if it's not as literal as we would take that, you know, um, he always goes back to her. That's she's home for him. Yeah, and to that point, what I was gonna say next about her is that 
I think one of the reasons Tony is gets so frustrated fighting with her more so than mo- many husbands would be is because Carmela is great to have in your corner. Mm-hmm. And I always think to that scene in I Dream of Jeannie Cusimano when she's like rubbing his shoulders and talking to her, talking about Livia and she's like, I could strangle her. And, you know, she's just on his side and she really, it's one of those moments when they, these two fight a lot. But it's one of those moments when, when these two click, it's oh. it's beautiful. And also the scene um, with the, the school psychiatrist yeah. and, mm-hmm. and he tells him off and then she just buttons it with, and I don't think we should have to pay for this either. It's, it's Because yeah. she knows he's right. Yeah. She believes they're, that they're right. Fucking You're, Dr. Galani, another Madagon. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, she she is. She's, she's very loyal and she'll do anything for the people. Um, yeah. she cares about. The, I, yeah. I totally agree. I, we mentioned how nice a person Lorraine Bracco is in real life. I've met Edie Falco now several times because her mother, Judith Anderson, is a local Long Island theater actress, and I am very involved in the Long Island theater scene. Judith Anderson's a wonderful actress, and Edie would frequently come to see the shows. My first job was working concessions at Studio Theater in Lindenhurst. Judith Anderson was in a production of Butterflies Are Free, uh, playing the mother in that show, which is a very sweet show, and, and Edie uh, came to that show, and I got to actually meet and shake Edie Falco's hand, which is a thrill for me. It was, Let's it was transition great. real quickly off of that. Who has anyone? Who who have you met? I've, I've only met Edie Falco. Hmm. I've, I've met, met Ray Abruzzo, who plays um, a little Carmine, a character that we'll meet later on. Oh yes. Have you met anybody? I don't think so. I have met uh, James Gandolfini once. You met James Gandolfini. Shook his hand and talked to him. <gasps> You touched James Gandolfini. I touched him. Here's the story. I'll, I'll tell you. I mean, I'll I touch t- you. Which hand? Which hand? This hand. I'm, t- uh, the right right hand. I'm touching the hand that touched James Gandolfini. Yeah. Um, I have to wash it now. Though. I. It's a little sticky. I don't know why. Uh, <laughs> I felt. We- I felt. We- <laughs> I felt weird about approaching him because I know he's a very shy, personal person. Was this at work? Were you in the theater? I- I'm going to give. I'm going to give the story because my second character or actor from the show that I've met, I actually can't tell the story without publicly without sullying their image to oh, no. because I after had a, recording please well, all right so let me start with the yeah, no I'll, after let me start with that but the two people I, I've met definitely from the sopranos are uh, Tony Sirico and um, James Gandolfini Wow I may have met a few others but I, I mean there's a lot but I've definitely met those two and my my Tony Sirico story is great but I, I, I can't tell it publicly. Um, <laughs> you know what I'm talking I about. I do right? know what you're talking yeah, yeah. about. Uh, but it's hilarious, and he's ask he's him a, when you meet Chris, listeners. If you meet me personally, I'll tell you. But I don't want to. I don't want to tell this story about him while he's still alive. <laughs> I'll leave some intrigue there. But James Gandolfini, my story is real simple. I was fresh in New York City. I was um, right out of college. This is 2009, maybe 10, somewhere around Nine. there. 2009, and um, I was looking for work. And I wanted, and I'm an actor, and I wanted like a regular gig. And I was going to every Broadway theater and applying to be an usher. And I wanted to be involved in the theater world and and just have that be my main source of income in between acting jobs. And I'm going around, I pop in at this theater, that theater, and what was the play he was in with Jeff Daniels? God of Carnage. God of Carnage Mm -hmm. was playing at this theater, and it was the middle of the day. So I had no reason to believe I was going to meet. It was like a weekday. I was job hunting weekday and I'm sitting and I go there and I knock on the stage door to, because you got to, that's how you uh, apply to be an usher is you knock on the stage door and talk to whoever's there and they'll send you in the right direction. Guy says, wait here. And he points me to a little seat right outside the stage door. 
walking up as I'm sitting there waiting, James fucking Gandolfini. And I'm like, oh my God. Do I say something? I know he's really shy and weird about being an actor. It's a very brief interaction. I, I, I wish I could have had like an actual like conversation with him. But I just like my jaw dropped and I'm like, I will never get this close to this guy uh, again. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I stood up and I didn't get in his way or anything, but I was just like, oh, Mr. Gandolfini? And he kind of looked at me, didn't say anything. And I'm like, hey, uh, my name is Chris. And I extended a hand. And he's like, hey, Chris. And he shook my hand. Very quiet, very polite. Um, I'm not here to bother you. I'm actually looking for a job in the theater. But I don't want you to think I'm a weird stalker. But I, I do, <laughs> do want to let you know that your work, I'm an actor, and your work has been such an inspiration to me. You're so special. I'm sure this is the thing you hear from people all the time. So I'm so sorry I'm being boring. But I love you, and you're great, and your work is so meaningful to me. And he, he gave me a very genuine heart. I'm like, thank you. That's very nice of you. And oh, that's uh, we very just sweet. kind of had that moment and shook hands. Wow. And he, I'm impressed. And, and then he went to work. They, they were doing a rehearsal. I found out later yeah, from yeah. the guy that they, they were doing some kind of brush-up rehearsal. Oh, that's great. And just to have had that moment with him was really special. That's awesome. Yeah. What a cool guy. There's a couple quick little topics I want to bring up, just sort of quick touchdowns, but we're getting toward the end of our discussion here. But I want to do one more top three before we get <laughs> Top get three! Top three! Moments! Rock and roll poison, yeah! Right. <laughs> Paul, you're fired. Okay, please please get out. Get out! <laughs> The fuck out of here. Um, I want to go into top three moments here. I think a lot of the subjects I want to cover before we wrap up are going to be elicited through the discussion of moments and top three episodes. So yep. let's do moments first. Lily, why don't you start? You haven't started one of okay. these top three yet. These are in order, I think. So my number three is Tony Professor's Love to Melt, the impact soprano. Mm. Mandolin. That that scene is beautiful, and I know we've addressed it a lot, so I think yeah. that's all I need to say about yeah, that. Yeah, clearly it affected all of us, yes. Yeah. It's so well acted. Too. It's it's brilliant. Well acted, well written, top level shit there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, for me, my number three, and I'm sure this is going to be on someone else's list here if I know the someone else, uh, Carmela dressing down Father Phil. That's my number one. That's <laughs> your number wow. one. Uh, That's my it's number just one. because here's the thing. It's a like all. And I dream of Jeannie Kusama. Yeah, I dream of Jeannie Kusama. When she tells him, when she just totally lays it out for right, him, right. guts him, and pulls his balls out uh, in 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 their <laughs> kitchen. You know the because here's the deal, right? It's just so satisfying. It's 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 just as well written and well acted as any scene you can. I mean, you could as far as best moments or scenes, you could pluck any randomly, and they'd probably make a top five list. It's the telling off you dream about, like yes. as a non-confrontational person yeah. myself. It's that moment you really want to have when you need to stick it to somebody. How much shit do we eat from people every day in our lives that we just don't like, and there's things about these people we just want to tell them? That's this, and I think that's why it's so satisfying for me and for Lily. Yeah, and she, you know, uh, I just want to address the whole scene. She comes home with groceries, and he's already there. This guy has the audacity <laughs> to enter the soprano home without anybody else there. Like, that's the, that is the epitome of rude to me. Like, yeah. you're a priest. You're not a family friend. Like, you're a priest. That's so invasive, literally, mm. right? And... She just, she's had these these moments throughout the episode where she's realizing with Rosie, because I think you have this MO where you manipulate spiritually thirsty women. Ooh, spiritually thirsty women. And I think a lot of it is tied up in food, 
Mm. Yeah. Somehow as well as, as the sexual tension game. And then he goes, and the moment when he goes back for the DVD too, and it just, (laughs) the bag, it's in crinkles and it's just like, Ooh, I'm glad I'm not him. Like I'm glad I wasn't (laughs) on that side of the fire. And it's just, he's really wronged her. She so badly wanted that fantasy moment too, whether it was with a priest or not. And we'll see that later too and how that gets ruined for her. And And it's, yeah, go ahead. I don't want to cut you off. No. Well, and it's satisfying because we see, we as the viewers can watch college and be grossed out by Father for the episode yeah. of college and be grossed out by the way he's manipulating her to his own kind of fantasies. Uh, but she buys in in that episode. She lo- she ne- She's getting something she needs from him. Which she is, wants him to stay when yes, he's ready to leave. Exactly. Yes, yeah, she likes Father Phil. She's getting something from him. So it's satisfying because it, uh, not only is it the tell-off thing that we're talking about, yeah. but it's also that moment where Car- like Carmela has put, put it all together. Yeah. Much the same way Tony, in, in a kind of much higher-stakes situation, I suppose, has figured out what's going on with his mother. Mm-hmm. M- Mel- uh, Carmela has figured out, this guy sucks. <laughs> yep. Yeah. yeah. He, ju- he judges their life and yet also uh, reaps the benefits. Yeah. And mm-hmm. he likes their, these ladies eating and taking care of food and taking care of him. And it's mm. just, it's gross. It's gross. And he she's, is gross. Yeah. He's very gross. And she really socks it to him. And yeah. that's my, that's why that's my number one moment in season one. It's a great. It's a great moment to pick. And also, as you've already heard, that I, I just have an undying love for Carmela Soprano. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, listen, uh, I, I think I'm bordering on our spoiler policy by saying this here, but I think we talked about it a little bit in our actual episode, the an individualist. This Father Phil actor is going to be around, but as far as, like, his closeness to Carmela and his proximity to this family, it's done. I mean, you know, he's never in the show as heavy as he is in this. He's there right. because he's the priest of their church, and the church is a big part of it. He certainly has some very cool moments later in the show but this phase of father phil is done she yep. ends it here and that's yeah. it's really good it's a really good thing that happened so that was the great great job it's lily's number one my number three uh my number three moment is my number three because i've never forgotten it like it's just something that has stayed with me for years and um it was already brought up this episode but it is when um junior uh hits bobby with the meringue pie um, just in the face. And um, it, it is absolutely because of that uh, sort of broken duality there that a pie in the face is normally meant to be a comedic uh, thing. Mm. Uh, but it, there's nothing more sad than him pieing her in the face with that pie. That is the last of Junior Soprano's happiness. Maybe hers as well. And the thing I think he will come to most regret, and it's plain on his face when he walks out, it is, it is that moment specifically, the pie hitting, coming down her face, her saying his name, his true name, Corrado, and uh, it is that moment. It's devastating. Another little nod here to David Chase. I think this moment is also meant to elicit imagery from one of David Chase's favorite movies, The Public Enemy, with James Cagney, mm. when Cagney, in similar fashion in the film, just shoves a grapefruit uh, in, a, in a woman's face uh, in a moment of anger. And mm. it's just like, again, yeah, I think so. That's another little origin of where they might have gotten an idea for that is not only is it a sad comedic juxtaposition a pie in the face like you mentioned that's interesting and then it's citrus and citrus too it could have been any kind of pie Mm, sure i I think also i I almost picked it as a food moment but it was it was bigger to me than the food oh yeah it was just i it was just it was it's heartbreaking i mean these scenes are there's so many and they're all great like i wrote down a bunch of them that just were 
not necessarily top three, but ones that came to mind in the pilot, Tony and Chris at the oh, barbecue. Yeah. And what Gan- we know we covered in the first episode, what Gandolfini brought to that. 46 long, the second episode, the first really big conversation with Livia um, is devastating, brilliant, really funny. We already talked about the ice cream scene, which brings up so much in Down Neck. My number three scene is a short scene without a lot of dialogue. It's, it's in college when Tony murders Petrullio. And what that brings up, and particularly the ducks at the end. Here's one thing that I want to say about The Sopranos that is true of Mad Men and most other brilliant shows that I know of. There's no secret sauce. There's no, you're not going to dig in and find, oh, the writer was doing this. The, what happens is the writers are good, and they tell stories that they think are honest, and they let them breathe. When David Chase started writing the ducks in the pilot, he didn't know what they meant. Mm. Of course he didn't, because he had to let them breathe and figure it out, and then it kept coming back, and the family imagery of leaving the nest came up, and then it comes back in episode five and creates this fantastic visual that captures right where Tony Soprano is in this moment in his life with the, the demands of his job, the demands of his family life, all coming together, leaving him alone in this field, like, what the fuck is happening? So that's my number three moment. Okay, well, my number two moment is uh, Tony and Chris talking about depression in The Legend of Tennessee Moltisanti. Yes. You've got these two guys who have no vocabulary for this. Tony only now has it a little bit because he's been going to therapy, right? But you can really see that he tries to give Christopher these tools too, uh, but he just doesn't have what Christopher needs to save his life. And again, Mm -hmm. that will be a through line the rest of the show too. Again, no spoilers. I will respect this podcast. But it also, it, it to me, it's it's the you want to get caught. That that's a line from there, and the regular the regularness of two of life is too fucking hard for or something. I don't know, and, and something horrible is going on inside my body, and and it's just Christopher knows something's wrong, and he, I think he even knows how to fix it, but he he just can't, and it's so tragic to me. And Tony really tries to be that and, and makes me think of men in this season and the show and this life as well. And, you know, in a, in a prior um, episode with AJ talking about AJ with the ADD and all of that, I don't think this group of people knows how to parent men, boys, mm. young men. And Tony's really trying to heal his his old self through AJ and to heal Christopher, who's someone who's so close to him. And but this moment with Tony and Chris is just so pure, and they're both trying so hard, and they just don't have the the building blocks yeah, to do it. And I, I just think it's beautifully sad and also funny and just like life, which is yeah. why The Sopranos is is horrifying, but also so oddly palatable and yeah. fun to watch mm-hmm. is just so human yeah i agree so yeah, that's you, my number you two. laugh because it's these two tough guys talking about depression and sadness but it's also horribly sad and, and but we forget that men have these oh, yeah. feelings and, and, and in general we're not kind enough to men who are feeling blue or feeling helpless or sad and these are two guys that are really trying just they don't know how to do it they don't know how to address it mm-hmm. My number two moment is um, going back to episode four, Meadowlands, 
It is what Jordan so brilliantly couched as the wise guy wink mm. when AJ is looking at Tony in the graveyard and Tony just kind of looks over and winks at him and we just get that last shot of AJ just staring at his dad and he's just not he's not in a good place at all like he you feel sick for him I think we talked at length in that episode that we did about what AJ must be going through there and how he's never going to see his father the same again. And then Tony just gives him that silly smile and that, and that fucking wink as if, hey, kid, this is all good or everything's going to be okay. Or we talked about any number of things that wink can mean. Uh, you're, you're a part of something here. Or, hey, kid, how you doing? It could just be, it could be anything. But AJ is just looking at him in that moment and seeing the feds and seeing Meadows' faces like, see, I told you so. And it's just, it's such a huge moment in the life of Anthony Soprano Jr. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he just is never going to see his dad the same way again. And it's a sickening, awful, powerful moment. The way they shot it, the way it's done, it really stuck with me. Chris, how many lines of dialogue are in that moment? Oh, precisely zero. Thank you. <laughs> That's how good the writing is, folks. That everything about those characters and where they are in that moment can be done. No words. Mm. By episode four. It's not even like we've been with these people for years. Yeah. So good. So, a sort of, maybe ironically, my second favorite moment comes from my least favorite episode of the season. It's from A Hit is a Hit. <laughs> um, it is a scene between Adriana and Chris. Mm. I just want to excerpt some of the dialogue here. So, it, Chris is trying to let Adriana down. He says... I think you should mentally prepare for the possibility that visiting day sucks. <laughs> um, and then Adriana comes back with, you know, what about my opinion that it's good, that it's special? Uh, this is just another way for you to keep me down. I, I have intelligence, uh, you know, respect, uh, talent. Uh, are you saying that I don't have talent? The scene is a great scene, not just because those two actors are just amazing. It's a great scene because... I think Christopher is recognizing something in Adriana that he unfortunately sees within himself too, that there is this lack of specialness and talent, and he actually doesn't know quite how to say it with her. He actually goes silent in the scene. He goes silent enough for her to say, that's you all over. You know, you're either screaming your head off or you're dead. Uh, all he can actually come up with in that scene is, I, I love you, mm. uh, before she, she kind of races out the door. And then, you know, it, it's a very upsetting scene. But I think... It's a moment that stuck with me because it is one of the keenest examples of a character recognizing their heart in another character. And actually, I, I love Chris and Adriana's relationship in season one because, you know, he doesn't fuck around on her. It's very real to him at this stage. He's really trying to love this woman the best he can. And in so doing, kind of trying to figure himself out. We've mentioned many times just in this episode today that Chris is lost and he's, he's missing a piece of himself. And I think he sees part of that puzzle missing in Adriana too, and it actually binds them closer, that the both of them are on the outskirts of talent, the outskirts of fame, the outskirts of respect. They're almost there, but they might never get there. It's a really good moment. It's a nice indication of how much he loves her too, because, you know, the fact of the matter is, is, what's his name, Master G? Uh, Massive, Massive Genius. Massive Genius, sorry everybody. Massive Genius likes that Adriana's pretty, right? Yeah. And Christopher so badly doesn't want to tell her that because as a woman, it opens, it, it, it breaks the seal of, is anything I'm good at mine? Yeah. And he so badly doesn't want to take that away from her. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he's trying everything. And for the same things you said, right, he just comes out with, I love you. And he doesn't have anything to say. 
Because if he does and tells her the precise truth, it'll crush her and, right. and, and really break her quote unquote innocence there with that point. And it's yeah. got extra weight to it too because we see in Tennessee Moltisanti how supportive and loving she is with mm-hmm. Chris and his artistic pursuits. <laughs> right. So it's like a double fuck. Uh, to, to have Pretty to good tell first them. indication that she doesn't know good from bad. Well, that's sorry to say. <laughs> right. That's also true. It, one can say even in her selection of Chris Moltisanti as a life partner as well. But that's a that's a story for another day. Beautiful woman, <laughs> as written in the screenplay. <laughs> I've got to be loyal to my capo. Three but, exclamation points. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So well said. Season one, Chris and Adriana. We get a good sense of their dynamic from just a couple little episodes and wonderful scenes. Uh, I gotta mention quickly Drea DiMatteo here. First of all, uh, for those of you who don't know, she has her own Sopranos podcast, episode by episode breakdown. Highly recommended. She's a very smart actress and a very lovely person. So that's worth listening to if you're into Sopranos podcasts. Um, but she does a wonderful job here. And an interesting uh, little story here from behind the scenes that you can find online. It's, it's I'm not making this up. She uh, wanted this role, and they almost thought she was a little too waspy or what quote unquote white to really? play this role. She was cast as a hostess in the restaurant in the pilot. Now, the character Adriana also happens to be a restaurant hostess, so it translates well into someone who's not looking closely. You may not even notice, but she gets cast as this kind of uptight restaurant hostess in the first episode, and then we see her in episode three as, as Adriana. But uh, the story goes that she somehow got her way back into the audition room after they saw the, her first audition and thought, eh, maybe she's a little... No, she's not quite Italian-y enough, not quite Jersey enough. Really? Oh yeah, and she, well, she she fucking showed them. She tussled, you know, the story. She tussled her hair up, went in with some gum, did the earrings, like made herself. She came in as Adriana and made them see it. And I respect that so much as an actor to have that. Eh, maybe she's not quite what we need for this. And knowing that, and being like, you know what? No, I'm gonna. I, I want this. And you know. The rest is history. Uh, we'll have a lot to talk about uh, with Chris and Adriana as the show progresses into the next season. But um, yeah, Drea DiMatteo. And great, great moment from... I love that one of your top moments is from your least favorite episode. It, it, it was strange to me too. <laughs> <laughs> Paul? Uh, so I'm at my number two moment. My number two moment is a scene from the end of Boca when Artie comes to tell Tony to call off the hit on mm. Coach Hauser. It's a great Sopranos moment. It, it's a great digging into the two characters. As Chris, we've talked about a lot on this show, uh, how Tony and Artie have a relationship seemingly like no other. Um, also in Sopranos S quality, everything that is said in this scene, or almost everything, means the opposite. Tony says your boyfriend is finished, so he's emasculating Artie, but they've all been emasculated by the yeah. story. Um, he says that there, it's not going another way. And that he's calling out Artie for this ambivalence, but Tony's the one who's ambivalent. Tony's the one who ends up calling off the hit. And it's just, I think it's perfectly executed on both actors at the top of their game, so that's why I chose it. Wonderful. Great scene. So your number one, Lily, was the scene we already talked about. So I'll go to my number one. My number one, I kind of cheated a little bit here. Um, because my number one is not a single moment, but it's a series of small moments that are tied together. We've actually touched on it a few times already in this retrospective, and I know we touched on them when they happen in the show. But Jordan and our conversations in these podcasts really elicited this, and when I went back and rewatched some of the stuff, these hit so hard. 
It's these moments specifically, and I'm going to use, Paul even mentioned it in one of his moments, Tony looking up at the ducks. Tony looking up is my my number one moment for the show. Mm. Uh, I can't believe you're saying this right now. Is that yours? Sort of. Go, you finish. It's these moments where Tony stares in puzzlement at these higher pursuits, these things that... Uh, yep. Yeah. You're going to hit my it? number one. Wow. We have the same number one moment. You both cheated. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mine's specifically one of those, but yeah. it's the same thing. Tony looking up at the ducks after the Febby Petrillo murder. Tony looking at the Hawthorne quote. Tony staring at the goddess statue. Is that your number one? That's I, I have. I the sound you just heard was my phone hitting the desk with the Hawthorne quote on it. <laughs> I didn't know, man. But this is you know it, it, it's um it's those moments when Tony is just kind of confronting higher things and. Our conversations elicited that, so I'm not surprised that that's your number one as well, that we have yeah, the same number one. for sure. My, my number one moment, I'll just tie it into yours, Chris. Yeah, the idea of Tony looking up. I think, you know, he's a man who's suddenly realizing his place in the world and that it's it's bigger than him, and he needs to find these, uh, you know, sort of higher pursuits. The tool is up there to figure himself out. He's looking for the key to unlock himself. College, amazing episode. No man for any considerable period can wear one face to himself and another to the multitude without finally getting bewildered as to which may be the truth or the true. Uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne quote from The Scarlet Letter, uh, you know, a novel that features, by the way, a, a priest having an affair uh, yeah. with a, a married woman. And, uh, yeah, it, it's it, that is, is the key theme in The Sopranos in season one that keeps me coming back because to try to see the common man struggle with the um, uh, sort of the academic man or the intellectual man's tools that has to always try to unlock to him. himself. Yeah. That has always eluded him is, is really... His parents never stressed college. <laughs> <laughs> right. As he says to, to Meadow in, in, in the episode college. Well, he had that one semester, right? Yeah, a semester and a half at Seton Hall. <laughs> um, but yeah, the bells attract his attention. The, the campuses, the... You know, yeah, it, it, it's, fasc it's a fascinating dimension that is never spoken of. It's acted and it's shown. It's mm -hmm. powerful. It's good stuff, and mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not surprised. Anything else you want to say on that, Jordan? No, that that's really it. Yeah, high five, same moment. High five. And yep. those moments are always <laughs> beautifully rendered in terms of the visuals, and you feel it. I, I really connect with that. It's the first thing we see in the series, mm -hmm. is him staring in fucking bewilderment at this statue of the goddess. And I would include weather moments, too, like the strong wind that comes uh, you know, towards the end of the, the season there. Yeah. Or the, the, the weather that creates the blackout in I Dream of Jeannie Kusumano. The, mm -hmm. the, the shot of Tony's scared and bewildered eyeballs in the rearview mirror after his scene with Livia in I Dream of Jeannie Kusumano. Mm -hmm. All of that, I count that. Hmm. My number one moment uh, is in... Um, Episode 11, nobody knows anything when Tony and Mackazian uh, rehash what's been happening at the uh, House of Prostitution. And Mackazian shares a very intimate memory of growing up um, in a household full of abuse and tension and anxiety and fear. And Tony doesn't say it outright, but Tony gets what he's talking about. And I think that as much as we've talked about what eludes Tony and what he doesn't see and what language and capacities he doesn't have, one thing that makes him a fascinating anti-hero over the course of these episodes is he has no choice but to wrestle with these questions of what it is to be a human being and what it is to actually have something like empathy for other people, mm. even people that he ostensibly does not give a shit about at <laughs> all, which is why it's such a powerful moment, even though, again... This isn't like a close friend. Tony at one point 
Mackenzie in that same scene says, you know, I do a lot of risky stuff for you. Why do you got to talk to me this way or something to that effect? And Tony says, I'm sorry, I'm under a little bit of pressure here. I don't have time to suck your dick. <laughs> it's another great Tony Soprano um, line evoking yeah. his usual sympathy and love for people. <laughs> <laughs> but in that scene, we also see them connect. You ever want to run under a bed, Tony? Yeah, right now. Yeah. So that's what that scene means to me. Very well. Guys, there are two quick topics I want to cover before mm -hmm. we do our final top three, which is going to be top three episodes of the season, and uh, we'll close it out here. First topic I want to address really quickly that we haven't really touched uh, as much as I want to yet is the idea of the kids, Meadow and AJ, mm -hmm. where they are, how they see what's going on. One of the most fascinating threads of the season for me is much in the same way you can cite all these moments of Tony looking up or looking elsewhere for something deeper. Uh, you have Meadow looking down. That's all over this season. Meadow watching this world and gleaming things and knowing more than she lets on. Uh, and the kid, But the message is the kids are watching. The yeah. kids are growing up in this. Where are we with this? Uh, the kids are fascinating. In particular, Meadow is someone I, I always watch. I think for Meadow, Meadow who's this amazing student, athlete, musician, just amazing kid, smart person, very shrewd. It's amazing to see that she's absolutely a product of her parents. I, I see so much of Carmela in particular in Meadow. Um, but for me, that's like the hope of the family exists in Meadow. I feel like Meadow's the one that can get out. She has a name that doesn't quite match everybody else's. We've talked about yeah. that. Her name Meadow is not, you know, it's not something Italian. She has pursuits and interests that aren't tied in any way to organized crime or even back to her own family she wants to go to college away from the east coast you know she's she's very tired of things in jersey in north jersey specifically she has dreams she has ambitions that are beyond her small family life but she still has that backward looking concern you know she's another audience surrogate in many ways i think meadow is is fascinating uh, i think the kids are compelling they're interesting they're fun to watch for me, particularly in this first season, starting off, the most important factor, and I think for a lot of the show throughout, particularly when they're young, is that they're not written like other young characters on TV. Other young characters, they always gloss over them. They often ignore them. It's always this kind of, oh, yeah, little scamp vibe, or especially yeah. in, like, bad sitcoms. The kids are always the smart ones for some reason, even though every kid I know looks like and sounds that they, like they got hit in the head <laughs> with a brick. Yeah. Um, <laughs> these kids, even the smart ones are often dumb. Meadow is extraordinarily intelligent. Yeah. Socially, she's an idiot because she's a 16-year-old girl. Right. And TV shows never do that. And this show was so honest about them from the get-go. I love it. It's And even for the mob genre, it's all new territory. In Goodfellas, Henry Hill's kids are like little girls. Like they're yeah. young, young kids. Godfather is all about parenting and what he did. You know, Don Corleone doesn't never wanted this for Michael. And it's about what role the kids take in this thing, right? But Michael's an adult. He's already been at war. It's a totally, it's again, it's a totally different dynamic. The idea of the teenage kid and coming of age and what, how do they figure it out? When does it become clear what they're involved in? I think that's relatively new territory for a mob story, especially a mob story that came at what might very well be the end of the mob genre, at least in contemporary, you know, uh, storytelling. So I, I agree, the journey these kids go on is quite special and nuanced and crazy. It's a crazy journey. It's crazy what these kids, who they are, how they came to be. And I could theorize with you guys forever about, uh, you know, where, where, what their role in all this is and how they see the world they're coming up in and why they turned out the way they did. 
Yeah, what I find interesting about them is you with with Meadow and AJ is you've almost got a flipped scenario, right? Speaking purely traditionally, right? Mm. The girl is trapped into a life and the boy can do whatever he wants. But in this world of the Sopranos, it's actually the opposite because there's no tie women have to being a part of this mafia lifestyle so i think tony and carmela put their all in 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 meadow and know exactly what to do and how to get her to go up and and she also has the aptitude to do this so that helps too but they don't know what to do with aj because all they know for men is going into the mob now we don't i don't even think we ever know enough about Carmela's family to know if that's true in terms of her parents and well they're crooked too Christopher's part of her family so right fair enough there you go so it's it they don't they don't have they don't know what to do with AJ you know AJ's not special AJ doesn't have that aptitude but they also really can't push it with him because they just it's either he falls in line with Tony and what he's doing which is really what they don't want but then what what does AJ do? Yeah. Yeah. And and they they have no tools of how to nurture mm-hmm. a boy. Yeah. You know, what are they look to Livia? <laughs> right. Right? Or or even his other their other friends. None well, of their and, sons none of their sons do get out, do well. And even the old school guys, uh like don't provide nothing for Tony to look to in this scenario. Junior's answer to AJ's misbehaviors, hey, whatever happened to boys will be boys. Junior would probably have no problem with an 11-year-old kid starting to get involved in the life or understand it. Wouldn't and he didn't. Correct. Exa- correct. <laughs> there are no tools for how to raise a good young boy. There are no tools in this family. There's no tools in this world or lifestyle. Yeah. And, and we see this in season one and beyond with AJ. They yeah. just don't know what to do with him. Yeah, AJ, I think they've just... It's not even that AJ is a fuck-up, by the way. It's not that no. anything AJ does is so bad. It's just kind of like, um, he's just... Yeah, Lily, you said it best. They don't know what to do with him. Uh, they're concerned when he's having maybe a problem at school, but even that gets chalked up to, ah, he's, you know, I, there's nothing really wrong. I'll even play the game of, even if AJ had the intelligence of Meadow, he would end up being Tony's protege. Mm-hmm. They, they would use him for that intelligence not aptitude, not career. Yeah. So AJ really is between a rock and a hard place with with, with yeah. no hope. And, and and I've brought this up in a previous episode. In fact, I brought it up in Genetics, our, our down mm-hmm. neck episode. AJ doesn't have specialness outside of right. himself. You know, he's not smart, he's not strong, et cetera, et cetera. What he has is that he's part of this family and he's going to have to try to make that work. And that's kind of the thing that he's going to latch on to now, perhaps as being his identifier. Certainly that's the case when he faces off against Pia Costa. Yep. Yeah. Um, it's just like, well, hey, I may not be smart or tall or strong or whatever, but I'm a soprano, you know, and that's, that's what's going to get him by. Right. It's like uh, somebody growing up without an arm, and they didn't realize it until they get to a certain place. It's yep. like, wait a minute, I have to deal with not having an arm. I don't have an arm. Everyone else has an arm. It's, it's, it's It sort of feels like that, where he had no idea, and then this Pia Costa thing happens, and he's like, wait a minute, this is something I'm going to actually have to wrestle with the rest of my goddamn life. Mm-hmm. It's tough. And we, tough. we think Tony may have gone through the same thing, as we see in the 1967 flashbacks in Down Neck, where... Uh, you know, Janice is the one that is touted. Uh, she's the family prize. You know, her she gets to go with Dad after the carnival. You know, and Tony just kind of shoved around. Classic middle kid, just not sure of his place. 
Yeah. Uh, and that's that's AJ too, even though not middle child. Right. The last thing I want to talk about before we do our final top three episodes is the idea of the importance, of, uh, cultural importance of Sopranos as episodic drama, because this came out at a time before the prestige drama really took over television and, and became a thing. And I think the Sopranos, a couple shows around this time, we talked about it maybe in the introduction, uh, but Oz and a couple other shows were floating around at this time, but the Sopranos really set off what I believe to be a second golden age of TV. And... Now there's so much TV you can't even, you don't even know what to do with it. It's like TV is is huge. Uh, it's not even really TV anymore. It's just streaming episodic content now. But I want to talk about this by and I want to kick off this quick conversation by just asking this question and then letting it permeate. If The Sopranos never got picked up by HBO because they were rejected by every network until HBO finally said yes, let's do it, and David Chase just had to turn this story about a therapist helping a mob guy see that his mother's his enemy. And that was just a 90-minute, two-hour movie. How would this all be different? It's basically asking the question, the 13-hour episodic structure served this story, I think, better than a movie ever could have. And I love film. I'm not knocking film. There's Film is, is, is the shit. But episodic drama and the potential of episodic drama, to me, was really exposed with The Sopranos because this, as a 13-hour story, we got so much more richness to it. I don't want to see the It's a Wonderful Life where there is no Sopranos. Just not interested in it. Mm. You know? I don't want to look back at a world without this television show. Right. It influenced so much. Yes. Yeah. Listen, I think if if Chase had it his way and it wasn't going to be a a show and it would be a movie instead, I still think it would be a great movie. Oh, fantastic. I think there's a great movie here. Right on my shelf next to Goodfellas. Absolutely. Uh, I think it would have been terrific. You would have just had a really dressed down version of these characters. Only a couple of them would have been as fully realized as they could have been. And I feel very fortunate that it was a show. In terms of prestige drama, there wasn't a lot before this. Some networks were getting pretty heavy with the cop dramas and a few other of the family dramas, but The Sopranos was really the first one to bring all those things together in kind of a a cinematic presentation. It has a specialness in television history. Many people consider The Sopranos to be the greatest show of all time. Even people that didn't like the show that much will say, you know, well, after The Sopranos, everything changed. So it's it's a really significant piece of art. I feel similarly, and I think the key to it being on television is that it, of course, changed television. Yeah. And so much of what we now experience in terms of writing, particularly in dramas, if not coming directly from The Sopranos, it opened, it smashed through the wall and opened it up. TV was so different before this. Not only... Oh, yeah. I mean, not only cop dramas, but a lot of them and a lot of legal dramas. And it really changed with shows like this where we had anti-hero characters where we had a great moral ambiguity to a lot of what we were digging into to me without tony soprano there's no walter white there's no don draper sure you know what i mean no way it's it's it kicked off everything we're currently living through uh as far as television. i think another boon for the sopranos and something that i appreciate looking back on it is that it came well before this phenomenon of binge watching came up which is a phenomenon that I try not to engage in and I don't like for a number of reasons, not the least of which is that everything starts bleeding together. Yes. And The Sopranos worked very hard 86 times to make episodes that were specific and their own unit in some way. 
there's some episodes in later seasons I want to discuss specifically because I think certain parts of the show, as binge-watching became more of a thing as The Sopranos went on, there's certain parts of the show that I feel actually didn't annoyed viewers watching it week to week. Uh, let's say, for example, there's, a, there's an episode uh, later on in the show that... Uh, I don't know how to say this without spoiling it. But basically, there are episodes that really annoyed viewers... Uh, in later seasons that they felt uh, watch I think watching week to week annoyed them but as part of a whole it's a great piece of the puzzle so I think the binge watching culture influenced the show and in some of its later seasons perhaps because you can have an episode that veers off into some really weird fucking territory because you know ultimately mo a lot of people are just going to stream it after the fact mm -hmm. yeah so the importance of the show to TV in totality, an episodic drama cannot be overstated. And this season was the beginning of it, and what a beginning it was. Let's uh, wrap it up here, guys, uh, with our final top three, and then we'll call it a day. Top three! All right, let's do it. Top episodes. three episodes. Top three episodes. Top three, top three baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Defiler. Oh. <laughs> we gotta defile, defile you. Paul, why don't you go suck on a down power line? Try, try to cook a trout on it. Yeah. All right, yeah, we're going to do top three episodes here. Uh, each of us has a top yes. three. This was actually one of the hardest ones to do because you just ha there's no way to make a top three of this season without leaving off fucking classics. Absolutely. Oh, this is a, a terribly unsatisfying process. Yeah. <laughs> Correct. So who, 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 who wants to start? Jordan? I'll, I'll start. A pat on the back to us, by the way, because I think we've actually mentioned something from all 13 episodes this yes. season, so at least it's it's easy to do these quickly because we've kind of already yep. dived into a lot of the reasons why these are good episodes, but yeah. my number three choice is probably higher on the list for a number of views, so I'll let you guys take it away. My number three is Isabella. Mm. Uh, this is an episode, of course, where you know we meet Tony's dream woman, except it's not his dream romantic interest, it's his dream mother. Uh, and once that revelation came about, once that card is flipped, I just, I, my head was blown away. My, head, it, my mind was blown out of my head. I'm going to take the reins here for a moment. Isabella is my number one. Please. Uh, and the reason it's my number one is because not only is it just peak Sopranos, but it comes at a point in the season when everything is coming together. The pieces are all fitting into place. You're realizing not only are these writers very good moment to moment, but they know what the hell they're doing in crafting a season-long story because everything, all the pieces are, are aligning, the stars are aligning. And not only that, we've gotten a sense of Tony in this season as a very competent, not only competent, but he's a good gangster. He's very good at this job. And everything is coming at him at, his, at a moment when he really is not able to deal with it. And I think that's a very interesting moment. It's a very interesting dynamic. It's a fantasy it's wild. The music is great. The, the the wind, the way, the whole the hit sequences come together. Junior and Livia having to recalibrate after the hit fails. It's just so many twists and turns. So many great moments. It sizzles. It fires on all cylinders. Isabella is a great character, and all of it is great. It ends great. It starts great. What a journey the audience has brought on in that hour. So I ha I can't say enough good about Isabella. Is Isabella on anybody else's list? Isabella is number two on my list. What you guys said about it really resonates with me. The only thing that I would add is that a key element in that episode, particularly in the first half, is that Tony is not only depressed, but in a very difficult space in what we call anhedonia, where he can barely get out of bed. And that is very hard to make effective without a first-rate actor. Well... 
luckily we had Gandolfini performing it, so it's <laughs> sensational. Yeah. Uh, my number three choice is Nobody Knows Anything, mm. which I believe is just before Isabella, and it's not an accident that so many of my choices are later on in the season, not because earlier episodes weren't great, but because we've marinated with these characters for a bit, and that we can do more in terms of story sure. without as much backstory or exposition. And even The Sopranos has to find its footing. Every show has that couple episodes sure. where they're figuring out what exactly it is. And nobody knows anything for me because of what it deals with personally. Tony possibly having to satisfy the code, which means a rat is a dead man, but that that also means that he would have to condemn his best friend. What do you mean I like him? I love him. Big Pussy is his, has been his friend for probably his whole life and not only that but the point that tony has come to by that by episode 11 how well he understands psychological inquiry and deconstruction but that understanding could point to not saving his best friend but condemning him i just think is brilliant structurally we've already been over what mckazian and john hurt's performance brings to it so that was my number three mm. well said my number three is boca Mm-hmm. Um, just a quick highlight because I know that we've talked about Boca quite a bit. Um, the scene where Meadow lets it slip that the coach had um, sex with Allie, um, Tony taking that information in is such a human moment. And I want to highlight that because, you know, we're, we're, we're in a post-Me Too movement era and... I think it's, again, when you, it's easy to demonize somebody who you don't know. Maybe who you loved, right? It was rough to find out that Bill Cosby was a monster, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe even a little bit, you do this with somebody you don't know. Like, I obviously don't know Bill Cosby. Um, But when it's somebody who's close to you and you have this moment where you're hearing that they're a sexual predator, you want to try to rationalize that out because... Even Tony wouldn't dream of that. Mm-hmm. Think about that. And, and, you know, of course, both Carmela and Meadow, as he's going on this rant about, I couldn't possibly, you've got it all wrong. And you, Tony, you know, it's hard to take in when it's somebody you know and you think you know and somebody Tony admires. This is a coach who's doing really great things with this team, and yet he's this monster. And it's a very complicated situation when you find out, find that out about somebody you know. And I thought that they did that very, they handled that very well in a way that doesn't victim blame and in a way that doesn't do anything but honor and try to protect Allie. And uh, I really appreciate that whole storyline in a way that I forgot because I always associate Boca with Junior, and I actually, in, in rewatching, had forgotten about that whole storyline. It really hit strong for me, especially that scene. Yeah, and it's such a f- interesting dilemma for a gangster to be in, right? Because mm-hmm. that's a scenario, you know, somebody you know has betrayed a child and or, or molested somebody or raped somebody, and you're just like, you have that initial moment of revulsion and anger. It's like, you motherfucker. Like, I just want to go beat the shit out of that guy. Mm-hmm. I say all the time when we watch these crime shows, mm-hmm. it's like somebody did, like, you know, I, this is like my go-to line when we watch a crime documentary. It's like, if someone did that to someone in my family, I'd shoot them on the courthouse yep. steps. They'd never see it inside of a courtroom. Uh, but, like, you have that initial, like, what the fuck? Are you kidding me? Um, so what makes it interesting is Tony is actually in a position to do something about it. Right. And, and to be directly, and Melfi poses that question to him, why do you feel you always have to be the one to set things right? 
And it's such a great, you know, something horrible happens. Tony's in a position to set it right, should he? That's the moral question. And it's not the last time we're going to wrestle with this question. And I'm, that's all I'm going to say on that subject. Yeah. Mm. Boca, great episode. My number three is uh, The Legend of Tennessee Moltisanti. That's my number two. I love Chris. I love that he has an interest in, in higher pursuits, and I can sympathize with him. It's also, in my opinion, the best dream sequence of season one. And uh, It's a great dream sequence. And, and yeah. We talked at length about so it good. At, in, in our episode, Cowboyitis, but it's... It's just so good. I love Chris's journey in that episode and the threat of looming indictments. To me, that's the pivot point in the middle of the season when things really start. It's like, you know, we've been slowly simmering. The water comes to a boil to me in Tennessee Moldesanti. Yeah. That's when things start really getting like, okay, where is all this going? This is getting real nuts. And all the great dinner scenes. <laughs> yes. So many great dinner scenes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah. the scene with the uh, terrible Jewish psychiatrist who admires the guy who drove for Lepke. <laughs> those were some tough yeah. Jews. And, oh, and, and you know what? For a, for a quote-unquote C-plot, I love that storyline of Melfi and her family and, Rick, yeah. and meeting her ex-husband Richard. And What is the moral culpability of, of treating somebody like Tony? Is he good? Is he evil? Can Melfi help him? That's a question that's going to be very important in this series and in this season. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so it's good. It's, a, it's, it's just a solid fucking journey uh, yeah you have that on your list Lily? i do for the same reasons you said so yeah. i won't rehash yeah. <laughs> right, here we go so uh my number two is college mm. uh college for a lot of people is uh maybe one of the show's most memorable episodes it, it certainly is for me i think it's a standout in season one i love college because it's a standalone episode you can pretty much go into college knowing nothing about the sopranos and it will play in true short story fashion as something that has its own self-contained arc, beginning, middle, end, about the gangster that takes his daughter to go see colleges in Maine and has to exact revenge on a rat who is hiding up here in the Witness Protection Program. It's effective as a noir story, a kind of a sort of a reverse noir, because yeah. we get all the bad noir weather back in North Jersey and up in Maine. Things are peaceful up in vacation land. And Tony must commit this grisly murder. When people analyze the character of Tony Soprano, and they're not doing so you know, around a podcast table... Um, they often say, oh, he was such a vicious killer and such a wonderful family man all in one. And, and they often point to that college episode. He's picking up Meadow. He's got the, the wire has cut, uh, you know, these uh, uh, wounds into his hands. And he's got the mud on his shoe. And, and she's putting the pieces together, too. I mean, uh, we hear in the very next episode, Pac Soprano, Carmela will say, you know, Meadow's not been the same since you got back from that trip from showing her the colleges. You know, it, it changes the dynamic between Tony and his daughter as, as well where we realize how much Meadow knows about the situation she's in. She's trying to have that honest moment with her father that she never quite gets, but, I mean, really everything is confirmed for her already. It's a fucking masterpiece. And it was James Gandolfini's favorite episode, even much, much later on. When yeah. He had money, much more to... I, There's I a think reason it's for... great, yeah. you know. And I, and I think it also lets us see a little bit of the parallel of, like, the man that Tony could be in Febby Petrullio. Just, you know, what if he tried to give this an honest chance? And you see what becomes of that. So my three episodes in descending order, three was Nobody Knows Anything, two is Isabella, and my number one choice for the season is Boca. Mm. I can't add too much to what Lily said because it was spot on. I think the only thing that I would mention is how interesting it is to see these characters dealing with sexual taboos, Mm. obviously, and actually how it's not only funny but becomes dangerous. And I think that... There is something to the question of who, 
as you mentioned, Chris, the quote about why is it up to you to set things right? What does it mean to be just in some way or to, and also to be the person who meets out justice or thinks that they're able to? Um, because we know from that same episode, Boca, what are the terms of gangster generosity? Well, the terms of gangster generosity, if you do things that we like, we get you stuff <laughs> and we get you perks. If you step outside the lines, we start to threaten you well before we know that you committed any crimes. So that's pretty chilling. And then so the sense of gangster justice is really scary. And uh, so for me, the steps that it takes at that point, the critical point in the season, episode nine, we're now really turning up the heat in the tension leading up to the last episodes. And I think it's pitch perfect the way that it's executed. Well said. Absolutely, Paul. My number one is I Dream of Jeannie Cusimano. And uh, that is my number two. So my three list is Legend of Tennessee Moltisanti, I Dream of Jeannie Cusimano, and Isabella. Yeah. So talk about it. That's um, your number one. I Dream of Jeannie Cusimano is a great finale, but also, you know, we're in a world where everybody lies to each other all the time, and, and this is the consequence of truth. For once in this show, everybody starts telling the truth, you know, and it's... Um, we find out the truth about Livia, even though we kind of knew all along, but Tony does, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Carmela realizes the truth in Father Phil, and it's just perfectly executed. One of my honorable mention scenes is the scene when Melfi breaks out the DSM-4 and tells Tony exactly what's going on with Livia, and Tony flips the table and gets in her face. Yeah. This, this is a perfect finale. It is. I, I don't know that anything is quote unquote ever perfect, but this is a perfect finale. The first episode of the series of the series, the pilot, and this episode differ from the rest of the episodes in that most of the episodes have either an ABC plot structure, one thing going on, or one or two things kind of juggling for our attention. But the pilot and the finale have like eight different storylines going on. And this ties them up in a way that is inevitable but also unexpected. Everything is great. It's it's such such satisfying resolutions, dramatic scenes that are funny, poignant, powerful. Yeah, I, I couldn't ask for a better finale. It's just you leave you leave the table from my Jimmy Kuzumano saying, "Well, I couldn't ask for anything more from this show. Mm. This was this was great. They laid it all out. It 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 fires on every possible cylinder. It hits every button. It just nails it. There's no you know." There's mystery still. We don't know where Pussy is. We don't know if he was ratting. Anything. But So it doesn't like tie it up in a neat little bow, but it wraps it up in a satisfying way that leaves you saying, wow, I want more of that. Yeah. The, the Pussy thing is the only thing that isn't completely wrapped up. The only other... There is a minor thing that I, I guess it could end there. I mean, we know it doesn't, but um, this issue of Carmela and Charmaine's friendship and whether that will ever be repaired is also mm -hmm. still kind of rocky in that last episode, but... I mean, the two women seem to be sort of content in ignoring each other for the time being. <laughs> I think we're up to my number one episode yeah. then. So my number one episode for season one, this was such a hard hard to pick, guys. It's oh, really yeah. hard to pick your number oh, one. Yeah. My number one episode is Down Neck. Yeah. Um, you know, springing off the quote, well, you only remember what you want to remember. Um, these are the moments that Tony is going back into his past, searching, searching, trying to figure out the things that make him broken inside and trying to reconcile with those things in the present. We have these beautiful 1967 flashbacks that I have never forgotten my whole life in the 20 years since I first saw them. Um, I love the lightly overacted nature of the flashbacks. I think it's spot on, spot on, spot on casting for Johnny Boy, Livia, and Junior. 
Um, I think the young kid that plays Tony does a nice job too, especially insofar as how he parallels AJ. Um, the scene in particular where he follows um, his father and his sister to the carnival yeah. and sees that he was not allowed to go is heartbreaking and then sort of violating when then he sees his father being arrested as well. Father comes home with ice cream. The episode ends with him having AJ uh, for ice cream as well. It, it is a, a beautiful episode, and I think the reason why it slightly edged out college for me was because it was more rewarding on the rewatch for me to see that and to make all those connections with Tony. It was almost like I was inside his head in the therapy mm. uh, as it was happening, much in the style of a Tennessee Williams play. Mm. Well, guys, um, talking about things in the past and that we look back on with nostalgia... Uh, I will always look back on this uh, this podcast and this adventure and this journey with you all with great fondness. I think this wraps up our retrospective. All right. I had a great time with this, guys. Um, but I love you all. This was a lot of fun. I'm Chris D'Amato. I'm Lily D'Amato. I'm Paul Mancini. And I'm Jordan Hugh. And we will see you all for Season 2, Episode 1, Guy Walks Into a Psychiatrist's Office. Thank you so much for joining us. Please check us out on all our social media pages. We will be back. We love you. Thank you for joining us. Enjoy, hope you enjoyed season one. I got myself a girl.